Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 98, in which I will be talking to longtime wrestling fan and USA Network engineer Steve Dworkin. This is a conversation that is going to span almost 70 years, so I hope that you will enjoy it. Before we get to that conversation, a couple of quick things I want to go over of what has been happening in my world. I'm excited to say, and I mentioned this in previous weeks, but it happened in the past week, we had a film crew here at the Solomon Compound in lovely Trumbull, Connecticut. We had a documentary film crew here interviewing me for an upcoming documentary on the history of women's wrestling. That documentary is going to accompany the film Queen of the Ring, the biopic on Mildred Burke, which is coming out next summer. And I believe the documentary will also be out next summer. It's going to have uh, some interviews in there from a lot of very interesting people with a lot of knowledge on the subject, including Jim Cornette, Pat LaProd, and others. So I hope that you will stay tuned for that. I will continue to keep you updated on the documentary on the history of women's wrestling coming next summer. Also wanted to make mention of a book that I recently got my hands on. It was sent to me, and it really is a fascinating topic, something that really interests me. If you are interested in the early history of professional wrestling, the early 20th century history specifically, there's a new book out. It's called Ballyhoo. The author's name is John Langmead. Ballyhoo, the roughhousers, con artists, and wild men who invented professional wrestling. And it's got a great picture on the cover of Ed Strangler Lewis doing what he did best. And specifically, the book focuses very much on the life of Jack Curley, a very important wrestling promoter from the early portion of the 20th century. So I am digging into this book as we speak, and I recommend that you do the same. One other quick item just to give you an update on Irresistible Force, The Life and Times of Gorilla Monsoon. The book is rolling along. I'm in the middle of writing Chapter 3. I'm delving into, currently, Bob Morella's high school career at Jefferson High School in Rochester, New York, where his athletic prowess was first discovered and where he was first able to really use his unusual size to really start turning heads and getting on people's radar. From there, I'll be jumping into the next chapter, which will focus on his time at Ithaca College and his exploits as an amateur wrestler in the Olympic trials and so on and so forth, leading right into his professional wrestling career, which began in the 1960s. So stay tuned for more updates on Irresistible Force, the life and times of Gorilla Monsoon. But right now, let's get to my conversation with Steve Dworkin, 
Steve is somebody who I got to know online through the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group and other places. Steve is a fascinating guy, and I think that you are going to come to the same conclusion when you get to the end of this conversation. Steve's wrestling fandom goes back to the earliest days of Capital Wrestling in the Northeast, and he really got into detail about being a fan all through late 50s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s, coming to work for USA Network and the priceless experiences that he had dealing with WWF superstars in the 80s and 90s. I really think you're going to love this one. I'm going to take you to my conversation with Steve right now. Okay, so it's my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to bring somebody on board the show who has some unique perspectives on wrestling history for a couple of different reasons. Uh, of course, first and foremost, he's somebody whose time as a wrestling fan goes way back to at least, I want to say, the 1960s and the early years of the WWWF and beyond. But he's also, and this is going to make me very self-conscious in my recording and sound, he's also spent a career in audio and engineering and recording and he's worked for a number of different places, including Sci-Fi Channel, Food Network, History Channel, A&E, MSG Network, HBO. And of course, most relevant to what we're going to talk about today is that he also worked for USA Network. And I'm talking about Steve Dworkin. Steve, thanks so much for being a guest on Shut Up and uh, Wrestle. Great to be here. Well, it's great to have so you. And uh, I know well, what... What we were talking about it, it, when we just before we started, actually, and I stopped you because I said, I want to make sure we record this part is you were going to tell me about how you first got into wrestling. And I would love to hear that because now did I have it right that it's 1960s? Uh, actually, before. It wow. OK. Predates WWWF. See, I was trying uh, to be kind to you, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a little kid. Let's put it that way. I, I, um, it started with uh, Groucho Marx had a TV show, You Bet Your Life, mm -hmm. please show. And this was when it was still in first run. So I think it might have been like 1959. And I was watching, and he had, he used to have, I don't know if you've ever seen it, they used to have like odd guests on just so Groucho could, uh, you know, talk to them. Right. And one of his guests was this huge, uh, wrestler with long hair, which nobody had back then, and a beard, and he was wearing overalls, and he had a horseshoe hanging around his neck, and it was Haystacks Calhoun. Huh. And for some reason, I was just fascinated watching him. And a few days later, I was changing the channels. This was when you had to get up and actually turn the channel. Even I remember and, that. I remember that, yes. <laughs> and, and, and I saw uh, Haystacks wrestling. So I kept it on. And after that, I think it was like Killer Kowalski and, and uh, several other wrestlers. And I just got hooked. And from then, then on, I started watching it every week. This was a show called Bedlam from Boston. Oh, wow. You know, what? My, my dad, my dad used to watch this show. I have to tell you, when he when whenever I talk about wrestling to my dad, um, who my dad is in his late 70s now, and, and he will tell me that he used to watch Bedlam from Boston every single time I bring it up. And I that that was, um, I think the promoter of that was Paul Bowser. So that goes back to about 
yeah, like late fifties, well, early. Well, I remember the the uh, commentator was Sam Meneker, who right, was previously a wrestler, and it was a studio show. You know, the ring was about two feet off the ground, and uh, <laughs> you know there was a small audience watching it, and uh, that was. I remember certain things from that. It, it, apparently, this was something that was an angle that was repeated all over, but. Uh, Pepper Gomez, who claimed he had the cast iron stomach and nobody could hurt him. And, Kilico, and he challenged Killer Kowalski to jump on his stomach off the top rope. And Killer Kowalski got up and instead he jumped on his neck. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned that because so that, that started a whole. Uh, yeah, you know, that actually, because you said it, but that was an angle that they would repeat in a lot of different places. I remember I talked to. Uh, Dr. Tom Pritchard, and he told me about being a fan as a kid and watching, and I think it was Pepper Gomez too, watching him do that same angle in Amarillo, Texas. And I think it was done in California. It was just, you know, back then all the territories were so cut off from each other. So if something worked in one place, you could try it again somewhere else and nobody would know. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that the the I've seen a picture of Groucho Marx and Haystacks Calhoun together. And I had no idea where it was from. And now I have to assume it must've been from that episode of you bet your life. Yeah. And I've been looking for that episode for years and it probably doesn't exist. No, probably um, not. Yeah. A lot of they, that. TV they used was... to repeat it. Right. They, they, you know, you know, the show was on for like 13 years, I think. So there's so many episodes. Yeah, and, and um, back then they used to record over everything, or, or sometimes they didn't even bother taping it at all. Yeah, well, his were on film. Oh, okay. So a lot of them do exist, but uh, I've never seen that one. It's a shame because so much and, of the television from the early years of TV is lost because it was just broadcast out into space and, you know, there was no recordings made. Right, and I know Bedlam from Boston was on tape. Because then they used to repeat it, like, I think a week later on another night. But they're probably all gone. You know, they, they would record over it to save money. Yeah, there's so much old wrestling that is lost, I think. Especially if you, once you get before, I mean, even before the 80s, it's kind of tough. But before the 70s, it's almost impossible. There's so little stuff out there. There's a few, you know, archives that were preserved. There's the Chicago one, which is great. All the international amphitheater but there's not a lot of and especially new york area you know when i worked at wwe and of course the first thing i would think to do would be to go into their video vault and i did um back then i don't know what it's like now but once you get before the 70s very 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 unreliable almost nothing and i think they just didn't they just weren't keeping it back then yeah and and the sad part is and i found this not only with wrestling but with music and with uh, TV shows and films and that nobody seems to really care. Mm. Yeah, there was, uh, and I'm sure you, you must've heard about this when it happened and this was a heartbreaker. I can't remember which company it was. It might've been Columbia. I want to say within the last 10 years, there was this gigantic fire and it destroyed original masters by Billy oh, yeah. Holiday, Louis Armstrong, all these other people. And yeah. they're just, they're just gone. So all we have now are 
you know, whatever impressions were made, the, the, you know, the CDs or, you know, LPs or whatever, the masters are gone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I remember when that happened, but um, well, anyway, getting back to the wrestling. Yes. Uh, then I found, uh, I guess it, the precursor to the WWWF. I don't even know what they called it then, but Capital Wrestling City. Yeah. It, you know, it was um, Tuesday nights. It was on Channel 5 in New York. Uh, Tuesday nights, it was on from 9 to 11 on uh, Channel 5 from from um, Sunnyside Gardens in Queens. Wednesday nights, it was on from 9 to 11 on from Bridgeport, Connecticut. And right. Thursday nights, it was on from 9 to 11 from Washington, D.C., so they were on three nights in a row then? Three nights a week for two hours, you know, prime time. Wow. They were all live. And and this was on Channel 5 in New York, you're saying? Yes. And that was that the Dumont Network, or was it already gone by then? No, I think it was Channel 5 by then. Okay. WNEW or whatever w it was. Oh, yeah. But this was like uh, Wednesdays and Thursdays, they had Ray Morgan, who was the announcer. And on Tuesdays, they, they had the first they had Lonnie Starr, who was, I think, a local DJ. And then they had this other guy, Eric Page. I don't know what he did, but. Uh, and that was the Sunnyside show. Yeah. And yeah. Um, then uh, I guess it was shortly after I saw, you know, watched my first uh, few weeks of matches. My father bought me tickets to a wrestling match at the Island Garden in Hempstead. Right. And uh, I just I went and I was fascinated. And, uh, you know, those days you could walk up to the ring. Uh, you know, now they keep you far back from it. But I remember all the kids going up to the ring and smacking on the canvas and all of that. Well, one thing I always see in those old uh, videos of, you know, w w being so close to the ring. One thing they never let you do now is um, all the kids would run up to the ring and get autographs from the wrestlers while they were in the ring, right before their right, match was right. starting. And, and you'd see, heel... yeah, you never see that now, obviously. No. And the heels were all empty. There was nobody in their corner. Right, of course. And <laughs> now you now you also, back then you're so used to see, I guess this is a good thing now, but used to see blood stains and everything all over the canvas. Mm. Now I think they change it after every match or something. Or certainly if anybody bleeds on it or they're definitely going to change it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, but it was a, a whole, you know, different feel to things back then. They would always start it with some really boring, you know, like uh, they had this. The, the first match I actually ever saw was Arnold Scoland, who I know lasted till, uh, you know, he was one of the execs over there. Yeah. But at that time, he was just, uh, you know preliminary wrestler and you wrestled this guy judo jack terry hmm. who i used to see all the time on tv and and at the matches i don't think he ever won a match <laughs> and he, you know he didn't even look like a wrestler he you know looked like somebody who would work in the deli <laughs> there were a lot of guys like that then yeah and uh, usually like the first two matches would be these drawn out you know boring matches and um, then they would have like three other, you know, matches which were more exciting. But that's how they did it for a long time. 
And yeah. I wound up, uh, my father knew somebody who worked for the athletic commission or something. So twice we went to the old garden oh, wow. and uh, both great matches. One of them, for some reason, maybe because I was a kid, I think of it as like one of the most exciting matches I ever saw, but was uh, Bruno against Antonina Rocca. Oh, wow. And were they uh, both, they were both good guys, right? They were both faces. Yeah. Uh, Bruno was just starting out and he hadn't lost a match yet. And Rocca never lost. And I don't know, you, you've probably seen videotapes or something of, of you know, Rocca. Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he had a, this very unique style. And uh, that's another thing about the old school wrestling is that there were a lot of different styles. Now everybody seems to be, I guess they're all trained by the same people. I think that's part of it. Yep, definitely. Yeah. But, you know, Rocca had, he wrestled barefoot and he would, you know, do what back then was like these amazing aerial, you know, moves that they don't, that now is nothing. But back then it was pretty exciting. And Bruno at that time was mostly relying on his strength. You know, nobody could move him off his feet or anything. And um, the match, uh, Rocco was trying all these things and he couldn't budge Bruno. And then he started, uh, became heel in the middle of the match. Rocket. And he started choking and gouging his eyes and everything. And then Bruno lost his temper and threw Rocco into the corner and started, you know, shoulder, you know, with his shoulder. You know, knocking into him and the referee tried to stop him and he hit the referee so the referee disqualified him and but it was a, I remember back then it was a very exciting match and uh the other one I that would I saw at the old garden was buddy Rogers against Johnny Valentine was he was buddy Rogers the champ at that time yeah and Valentine had just turned face not that long before because he was a heel. Yeah, well, Rod Rogers had that whole run where he for about a year or so where he was selling out the garden every month. I remember when I worked for the McMahons. Even then, uh, Vince would talk about it from time to time about the the family had such a fondness for Rogers. They loved him. I, I know later on they had a falling out, but they always really liked Buddy Rogers. I know I was at the match where uh, Snooker came off the top of the cage. That famous match at the Garden. Yeah, with Morocco. Yeah. And I remember he came out with Buddy Rogers. And then they were talking about a tag team with Buddy Rogers and Snooker against, uh, they think, Barocco and Albano. Right. And I was excited to see Rogers wrestle again. And then that didn't happen for some reason. Well, the story I heard was that uh, he slipped backstage at the Garden. Rogers did. It might have even been the, the same day. But he slipped and he injured himself. He wound up suing the company and he sued the garden. He sued everybody. And that was where they kind of parted ways. And of course, then they plugged in Arnold Skoland instead. It wound up being Snooka and Arnold Skoland. Yeah. Who I had no desire to see. Uh... No, no, he was never. I mean, he was around forever. God bless him. And I knew him. He was a nice man, but he was never a big star. He was always like the on the lower card kind of. Yeah. yeah. As a wrestler, as a wrestler. Yeah, he would, you know, be one of the first two matches or something every time I saw him. So anyway, I was a big fan. You know, I was like 11, 12 years old. Uh, I had a few friends who were big fans. And um, 
up until let's say I was in junior high school and I had a few friends who were fans and we would go to, um, you know, back then I wouldn't let my kids do it. Now I wouldn't let my kids do it. But that, back then we were able to get on the, the subway and go to Sunnyside Gardens on our own. And, uh, you know, we went quite a few times. And then um, I guess it was around 63, uh, I found uh, girls <laughs> and uh, and music and all of that. I started singing with a singing group and we were going to be big stars, you know, we thought. And uh, I sort of drifted away from the wrestling for quite a few years. And then I got married in 71. And back at this point, uh, wrestling was on um, UHF. Uh, right. I, weren't they on the Spanish language station for yes, a little bit? Yes. Right. Like channel 47 here or something. Yeah. And I didn't, I had an old TV when I, you know, lived with my parents, this old TV in my room. And it didn't have uh, UHF on it. So I couldn't have watched it. So after we got married, we got a new TV. And one day I said, uh, and it, this was sort of the, the, the height of like the, the hippie culture and everything. And, right. you know, all the cool people had long hair. And and I said, gee, I wonder what uh, the wrestlers look like now, or if they've, you know, progressed with the time or whatever. And I put it on and um, I got hooked again. <laughs> so, um, so I did lose about, you know, eight years uh, where I didn't watch it. But since 71, I've been, you know, watching it regularly again. So you missed the whole first Bruno title reign, basically. Yeah, yeah. And wow. uh, when I started watching it again, Pedro Morales was the champion. And um, it's funny because they rely so much on talking now. You know, so-and-so is good with the mic. Yeah. And some of these guys were awful with the mic. <laughs> Yeah, they were. They were. You know what I think? And I, when I I love watching stuff from that era, but some of them, it's not so much that they were really bad, but it's just that they just spoke like ordinary people. You know, they didn't really uh, kind of project their persona the way they want guys to do now. They didn't at least the baby faces. They were very kind of soft spoken and down to earth. And, you know, some of the heels could talk a little bit, but I think that's why they relied so much on managers too, because those were yeah. the guys that really could talk. Well, I remember they used to interview Pedro Morales and he had the same thing every week. You know, right. this, this match is very special to me. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then he'd and speak I've been a little Spanish. special for this match. You know. Special for every match. Right. And then uh, he, yeah. he'd, he'd speak a little Spanish, right. The same way Bruno yeah. would do a little, Bruno would do a little Italian. Well, also, I don't know if you know about this, um, but uh I might even have a tape, an audio tape somewhere. But um, I remember when Bruno first started out, he had a very, very heavy accent. Now, I don't. And, and then when I started watching it again, he had very little accent. So I don't know if he, you know, actually worked on that or if he was putting it on in the earlier uh, interviews. Oh, that's so interesting. I, I've never heard that because uh, I always was amazed at how I mean, I, I don't. I'm not trying to sound insulting or anything, but just knowing that he grew up in Italy and he didn't come here until he was almost fully grown. I was always impressed with how little of an accent that he had, like you said, but that's really only because I think uh, the only promos and things from him or that I've ever heard is 
70s and 80s and after. So I don't think I've ever heard him talk from that far back. So that's really interesting. I, I wonder if he, like you said, if he was if he was laying it on thick for the Italian fans. Who knows? Yeah, I'll have to see if I could find that uh, that tape. Oh, that's interesting. But- and I have to ask you, um, you know, because I always love asking people about this. Well, two things. The old garden, you know, my my grandfather was a fighter. I've talked about it on here a lot. He was a and he was a coach and he did a lot of work with the Golden Gloves. And so he was, you know, he was in the garden a lot. He was everybody knew him there. And, and he used to go to Sunnyside Gardens a lot, too, because um, that's where they had a lot of the Golden Gloves fights. And, you know, he would always talk to me about the old garden. And of course, I never got a chance to go, uh, you know, it was before I was born. So, you know, I, I love asking people about what it was like to see wrestling there. I know it was very, very different kind of a building than the new garden. Yeah, well, it was much smaller than the current garden. Right. Not, but it was still a big place. Um, it was. Um, I don't even know how to describe it. I, my we. The two times I was there, we were able to get very good seats. We were like in third row ringside. So the perspective of watching it from a distance wasn't really there. Um, you know, if you're sitting ringside, it doesn't matter if you're in this tremendous place or this this small place. You know, I had been there for other things, for the circus. Right. But um, it was, um, I'm sure there's still some arenas that are like that. Well, one thing uh, my grandfather used to always say was that it was set up more like a theater where you could, you know, it had the marquee and you would walk under the marquee. Oh, yeah, and, outside. But yeah. you could basically walk right in off the street. Like the doors opened and, you, you know, you walked in off the street and you were pretty much in there, you know, unlike the, the you know, the modern arena where it's like, uh, you know, you have to go through a labyrinth to get it just to get inside to your seat. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it, that probably took up the whole building, unlike like Madison Square Garden. I think you have to go up like five flights just to get to right. the main floor. Right. Yeah, you and, go up all these escalators and everything, and even then, it's like there's the jo- whole giant uh, rotunda that goes around it, and uh, it's very different structure today. Yeah, I, I was just there for a Billy Joel concert a few weeks ago. Um. So, yeah, um, Nassau Coliseum, I don't know if you've ever been there. Plenty of times, yes. Yeah. I've been there for sure, yep. Yeah, well, there it's like really underground. Right, that's what they call it. The, the they yeah. call it the mausoleum, the, the Nassau mausoleum. And, and now they're looking about closing it because they built uh, the... Uh, the Belmont. It, the yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, they did some kind of major renovation on it, I want to say, about 10 or 12 years ago. Yeah, yeah. They practically almost rebuilt the whole thing from the inside out, but it's still the same location. I just went there. I hadn't been there in years. I used to go there all the time, mostly in the 90s. But I went back there to see Elton John on his, you know, quote unquote, farewell tour. But I saw him there about a year ago and I hadn't been there in years. And it's totally different now on the inside. Yeah, but it, I, I mean, they had, they did have WWE there a few months ago, but other than that, I don't remember anything being there. And I also, I want to ask you about the Sunnyside Gardens too, because that's a place where, you know, a lot of people, you never hear people talk about it anymore. But for New Yorkers in that time period, it was a very well-known place, especially for boxing. It was like one of the, 
it was like one of the premier what they used to call boxing clubs. It was a really popular location for boxing and wrestling, right? For like basically 50s, 60s, 70s, right? Yeah. And I, I was never there, but um, there was one in Brooklyn also. I think the Knickerbocker Arena or something. Oh, yes. Or maybe similar. there was St. Nicholas, I think. Was that in the Bronx? There, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Um, but uh, Sunnyside Gardens, it was a, a I don't know how many people it held. I mean, it was nowhere near as big as, you know, if the garden holds, like, let's say 12,000, this might have held 4,000 or something. Right. If that much. But one of the nice things is that no matter where you sit, you aren't that far from the ring. And did they get uh, did they get the big stars there and the big matches, or was it really a lot of kind of lower card guys? They they no, they had the big matches, except um, it wasn't you know like they would have usually like five matches or six matches, and they weren't. Um, there would maybe be three matches with big stars, and then they would have a lot of you know. Jobbers, I guess. You know, I had sure. this guy Joe Turco, Joe Turco, who always <laughs> the, lost, and the Continental he, Nobleman, of course. Yes, <laughs> and he would spend half of the match, you know, like arguing with the audience, and you know, he couldn't even fall down properly. I don't know if when he was younger, he, <laughs> you know, uh, but they did have. I like well, when I was younger, my first run, I did see match. I saw Buddy Rogers and Bruno Sammartino there against Buddy Rogers pinned him. Oh, right. Yeah, you were telling me that. That yeah. was uh, when – so Buddy Rogers, I guess, was the NWA world champ, and Bruno really wasn't the top yeah. guy yet, so he he, he beat him cleanly. He, he was – um, you know, he was still fairly new, Bruno. Yeah. And uh, what else did I – I saw uh, – what they used to have at the TV shows, because I went to one of them, is the feature match would be on at 8.30. And then they would go on the air at nine. So they called that the dark match. Right. So I guess that was to get people to come. And uh, I remember they had Johnny Valentine against Bruno as the dark match. And then I remember seeing, I mean, I have all of these written down, but uh, I'm not going to bother reading it to you now. <laughs> but I remember one of the afternoon shows I went at, at, at Sunnyside. I think the feature match was... Um, Bruno and Haystacks Calhoun against Bob Orton Sr. Mm -hmm. and um, the great Scott. Mm -hmm. So they had, you know, fairly big names there. I saw, um, uh, you know, I saw Pedro Morales uh, when he won the, was the champ. He wrestled um, uh, Buddy Wolf, mm -hmm. who was more, I guess, like a mid-carder. Well, the yeah, I guess maybe you know the 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 top contenders would get their title shot at the bigger arenas. I'm yeah, guessing. Yeah. Now the the Rocca and Bruno match is interesting to me because I'd seen I'd seen the result and I knew that they had wrestled, but I I've never spoken to anybody who was there, and it's interesting that Rocca would kind of start to heal it up a little bit in the match and it you know because it, knowing the background of it right so like by that point Rocca had been around quite a while in new york and bruno was going to be destined to be the the guy who essentially would replace him so i wonder if that was sort of the thinking there like they were sort of trying to get the crowd more on bruno's side than on Rocca's side 
Well, I think they wanted to give Bruno a good, a big push. Yeah. That's why he was like, but they didn't want Rocca to lose. So, you know, like him beating up Rocca at the end and the, you know, they had some of the wrestlers from the dressing room come in to pull him off and all of that uh, made Bruno look good, even though he was disqualified. And then uh, they had the following month that I wasn't at the second one, but they had a, like a one hour draw or something. And then they shook hands afterwards. So. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Rocca I don't think Rocca ever lost a match at the Garden. I, I certainly no, don't think no. he was never pinned. Yeah, that's another thing uh, about like the old school as compared to the new. Um, is you never certain people you never saw them lose. Uh, Rocca was one. Um, there were a few back then. Bruno, you know, was very rare. Uh, even Haystacks Calhoun never lost on TV or anything. Well, when I was a kid, that was definitely the case with Hogan. I mean, you never saw him lose when he when he lost finally when he I mean, when he came back, you know, when he was the world champion, when he lost to Andre the Giant, even then he didn't really lose. I mean, it, they had this whole elaborate angle where, you know, he didn't really get pinned. But the referee oh, yeah, with the two referees, right, the twin referees. I mean, you never saw him ever lose. I, I know when the Ultimate Warrior pinned him. That was the first time he had lost a match in in the WWF in probably like six years or more since he had come back. Yeah, he, I um, but he was the only one. Like now, you see everybody lose, right? Every, it's like back and forth. You know, I I beat you, you beat me. It's a you know, it's a little more. You don't get. I mean, now the they sort of brought it back a little bit now with Roman Reigns, where he hasn't. He hasn't been pinned in a singles match, even going back before he was champ, something like four years now, which makes him, you know, that's kind of a throwback. I mean, you never, you never really see that anymore. Everybody loses and the, you know, the titles change hands much more often now too. That's part of it. Yeah. And, and I find that when I go to, you know, I've gone to, you know, within the past few years, you know, I still go to the matches, not as often, but, uh, um, it, it almost isn't like, well, it doesn't matter what the matches are. It's going to be a good show. Right. As opposed to you used to go to see the matches. Wow, I really want to see, you know, uh, Bruno against Ken Patara, or I really want to see, you know, this one against that one. And it doesn't seem to matter anymore what the matches are. And most of them you've seen on TV already. And that's why I'm thinking, too, especially the the, atten the attendance, the amount of people there would really depend on what the main event was, what the big matches were. And, and it would really fluctuate from month to month, depending on uh, who was on top. And, and I think that's by design. They don't want to have to rely on those stars anymore. They know people are going to turn out to see um, WWE. They're turning out to yeah. see the show. And it's not, the, it's, it's not, the, it's not uh, so much like you said, a specific attraction that they're coming to see anymore. Yeah, the the Island Garden was a pretty big venue. I think it owned about held about eight thousand people. Uh, that's the one in Hempstead where I went to my first match, and they used to have much bigger matches there than they had at um, at Sunnyside. And uh, I remember they had there was this whole big controversy. I don't remember how, but the, there were no tag team champions. And this is maybe 1960 or somewhere around there. So they had a tournament. And apparently Eddie Graham had left the company or went down to wherever he went to. Right. So they, And the that. Graham brothers were like the big tag team. So they 
put uh, Johnny Valentine with Jerry Graham as his new partner. And they wrestled Mark Lewin and Don Curtis. And the the championship match, you know, the final finale, whatever it was, was going to be at the Island Garden. And I went to that one and and Graham and Valentine won. And uh, but it was like, you know, now, like if you see somebody lose the title or win the title, it's usually one of the pay-per-views. Right. Not uh, at a house show or anything. Yeah, once the once the pay-per-view started to become a big thing and you started seeing more big matches on television, then the non-televised events started to become less and less important and to the point where today it's really just it's really just sort of like going to the circus or something like there's yeah. not you're not going to see I mean you you may see a great show and I've seen plenty of great house shows, but you're not going to see anything major or important happen and it's not going to be reflected on television or anything like that so if you know you you every every time you see a title match on a house show it's sort of like it's fun and everything but you take it with a grain of salt because you know it's not gonna change and um uh but like i said it, it was interesting to see the different styles back then you know like uh i remember i was supposed to the match got canceled um but at one of the Island Garden shows, they were supposed to have Killer Kowalski against Antonina Rocca. And this, the two styles were so completely different. I, I, I couldn't imagine them, you know, going at each other. And uh, what happened is Killer Kowalski missed his plane or something. So they put uh, Argentina Zuma, who was like a Rocca clone, right. in against him. Well, Rocca and, was... Yeah, go on. Sorry. Yeah, no... You were going to say something about Rocca? Well, I was going to say, because especially like with what we were talking before, Rocca was, he was kind of the first wrestler to really rely heavily on all the kind of high-flying moves. I mean, there were guys that would do some moves, but he was the first guy where that was his whole, his entire offense, offense was just all high-flying stuff. And like you said, now we see it so much. There's so many people that, do what he does it's it's almost like almost everybody is required to do it but back then he really really stood out he was the only one uh, yeah yeah and it used to be so impressive even jimmy snooker i remember him coming off the top rope was such a big deal <laughs> yeah and, and now everybody does it right it's almost like expected like if you're a wrestler yeah. you you you're you're gonna come off the top rope at some point in your match and even at the time that snooker was doing it you know, he wasn't the only one, but it was very rare. And he was the one where I think it got over so big with him that every wrestler wanted to try to do it, too. I think he he was partly responsible for that. Everybody saw that and said, I'm going to try to do it. And I remember one time he was had some kind of feud with Don Morocco. And Morocco was standing outside the ring and Snooker it was during the, you know, on TV during it. They were interviewing Morocco or something. And he said something about Snooker and Snooker was in the ring and he went flying over the top rope and jumped on Morocco. <laughs> and that was the first time I ever saw somebody jump out of the ring, you know, onto someone. Right. And now it's like uh, every 10 minutes. Yep, exactly. And, you know, I remember Randy Savage being somebody who would do that from the top to the outside. But again, it was yeah. rare. It was like a real signature move. Uh, and that's the other thing, too. Like you talk about how 
when you were going to those early shows, the first few matches honestly would be kind of dull. They would be very basic matches. I think sometimes people would still be filing into their seats and, and the show would build and it would get more exciting and people would do more outrageous things, you know, high spots and things. Whereas now it's like to go outside the ring again, it's like almost every match, every single match it's expected at some point they're going to go outside the ring. And the uh, on the announcer's table, I think at least once a week. <laughs> oh, that, every show, every major show, it gets broken. It's expected. Again, I remember the first time that was done, uh, it, especially in WWE. I know it had been done before, but they started doing it in the mid-90s. And it was it was a shocking moment. Like, it felt like the whole show just stopped. It was like the whole, I think it was Bret Hart and Diesel. The first time I ever saw it in the WWF on a pay-per-view. And the whole show stopped. The announcers couldn't believe it. You didn't even hear them talk for a couple of minutes, you know. And now it's just sort of like, well, okay, they're going to destroy our table again. And nobody even really seems that put off by it. You know, they just kind of stand there and watch it. Yeah, I used to occasionally work with, um, now I forgot his name, and he even got me tickets once, the Spanish announcer. Oh, uh, is it, was it uh, Hugo Savinovich or? Um... No, no. Uh uh, it was who, the other one. Uh, he was there much longer. Uh, Carlos Cabrera? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So he would come into the studio to do Spanish narrations. He had like 10 jobs. You know, he was the announcer on one of the Spanish stations, and he worked for the WWE. And, um, you know, so he was constantly working. So he used to tell us these stories. And he said, one day, I, I don't know which kid it was, but... Um, one of Ric Flair's kids went over to him and said, if you see my father walking towards you, just get up and walk away because he's crazy. <laughs> well, I want to ask, actually, before I forget, um, you just mentioned before about uh, Carlos Cabrera and coming into the studio and stuff. I wanted to get to this is that the fact that in later later on in your career, you came to work for USA Network. So you kind of had dealings with the WWF or WWE, whatever it was at the time, uh, what exactly were you doing at that time for them? Okay, well, you know, uh, I was a big fan, uh, like I said, from 1971 on, you know, that's when I got rehooked. And I would go to the matches and I would try to get people to go with me, which wasn't always easy. Uh, but, I, you know, I would always find someone to go. And uh, then I guess at... Um, I started as a recording engineer in the late 70s, mid 70s. And uh, I started working at this place. And originally we were doing like industrial films and stuff like that. We weren't doing, you know, like rock groups or anything. It was more like, uh, you know, voiceover work and mixing it with music. And then we got this new client, which was USA Network. This was like 1983 which I had never heard of. And in Queens, we didn't have cable till years later. Right. I had the same issue in Brooklyn. We didn't, I didn't yeah. get it till 92 is when my neighborhood got wired. Yeah. Yeah. Probably around the same time as us. So, um, but then I saw that they had wrestling. And of course, one of the producers who would come in was a big wrestling fan. And uh, he used to bring in, like he once went down to the garden and I still have the tape somewhere. He had Roddy. This was when everything was still 
I don't know how to pronounce it, kayfabe. Yep, you got it. And he, he went into the dressing room and he had to shoot promos with some of the wrestlers. And he had uh, Roddy Piper and Paul Orndorff. They were promoting um, the TNT show. Mm-hmm. You know, the talk show that they had. Yep, I definitely remember it. Yeah, and uh, so, you know, you he has it before they cut it. And you see Roddy Piper going, okay, so what's the name of the show? And he goes, TNT. He goes, oh, and it's on USA? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, all right. And they count him down. Right away, he starts screaming and pulling his hair, you know, like <laughs> Roddy Piper used to do. And yeah. then as soon as it was over, you know, they stop. And he goes, was that okay? <laughs> you know, just very calmly and. And then uh, Sergeant Slaughter, you know, comes over and he's saying, you know, asking the questions. And then um, as soon as they start rolling, he goes, you know, attention, you know, goes into his character. Right. So, you know, that was fun to see. And we used to do a lot of, uh, we even did some studio wrestling. We just took pictures, me and the producer and the voice talent, uh, you know, picking each other up on our backs and all of that. Uh, Then... uh, the, the voiceover guy put uh, ketchup on his on his head, you know, right. and it turned out it was barbecue sauce and it started burning his eyes. And uh... <laughs> so anyway, I, I, you know, then I had like the inside uh, thing on the wrestling. Right. Which had and, to be um, that had to be great because you'd been a fan for so long. Oh, uh, yeah. And over the years, I used to um, I was like the go to guy. Um, there was this one producer who was also a college professor. And he was from England, and he had this English accent, very sophisticated-looking and speaking guy. And, you know, he would call me up and go, Steve, what does Brett the Hitman heart look like? And I would say, oh, he wears pink, and he is, you know, and I would describe him. A few times I went over to the video house where they were editing and, you know, point out the different people to them, and I would catch mistakes. And um, they used to, you know, send me comps. And then uh, one day they, they, they started a show called Primetime Wrestling. It was before they did Raw. It was on Monday nights. Right. And they had a studio audience. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Well, Gorilla and Bobby Heenan hosted it for me. Yeah. Many. And Vince McMahon like hosted also. Yeah. That was a little later. They had he and, and they did. Yeah. They had a studio audience for a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, it said uh, at the end of the show, if you want tickets to... You know, and gave an address. So I just called up uh, one of the producers at USA and I said, Can you get me tickets? So I said, Sure. So the tickets got lost in the mail or something. So they said, Go down. This was, you know, in Stanford. At the, well, you work there. So I guess, you know, uh, yeah, the, the TV studio. Yeah. Yeah. So we went, he said, Get there early and ask for Roseanne. So we got there early. My son was about 10 at the time. But he was a you know big fan. And we go in and I asked for Roseanne. She goes, Oh, you're the people from USA? And I said, Yeah. So she said, Well, you're early, so let me take you uh, on a tour. And you know, she showed us the facility and you know, and then uh, you know, all the different rooms. I remember we saw um Alfred Hayes, you know, went over to my son and was talking to him. And then she took us into the employee cafeteria. And we had coffee and my son bought some donut. You know, I bought him some donuts and Sherry walks at Sherry Martell walked in. Uh-huh. So she introduces, she goes, Oh, this is uh, Jesse. He's a big fan of yours. You know, my son. 
<laughs> and she goes, oh, hi, Jesse. It's so nice to meet you. And she goes to shake his hand. His mouth is full of donuts. <laughs> and he's in shock that she's so nice, you know, because she's a heel. Right. You know, he didn't understand the whole thing back then. Right. So then afterwards, I wanted to thank her and I couldn't find her. So I sent her, you know, a thank you note. And a few days later, I get a um, a carton, a uh, whatchamacallit, um, FedEx carton delivered to the studio with a picture of the ultimate warrior on it. So, you know, I open it up and it's T-shirts and wristbands and, you know, all these things with a letter from her, you know, saying, I'm glad you, you know, had a good time and it, it's always nice, you know, meeting fans. And anytime you want tickets, just call me. That's so, so nice. for years, I, I, I used to get comped all the time. It was great. Now, uh, my son and my grandson and my son's wife, you know, like it. And now I have to pay for them. <laughs> right. So, well, that, and, yeah. And it's now it's expensive. Also. Oh God. It is almost prohibitive now. It's ridiculous. Um, you know, because I have a young son and I like to and he's into it. We watch it on TV and he'll ask me to go to shows and stuff. And I don't have I used to have those. con. I mean, I, I worked there. I worked there for seven years. Yeah. This is way before he was born. And, um, you know, over the years, the problem is now it's been 16 years since I worked there over the years, more and more. There's less and less of my contacts that are there. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't have the stroke that I used to have. So uh, in the past in the past couple of years since I've been taking him, I just have to buy the tickets outright. When my older kids were little, say about 10 years ago, I still knew enough people there where we used to get comped and I would take them. And then at the end of the show, I would take them down to the ring and, you know, we, the, the, photo the photographers would be down there. My friend, John Giamundo, who was the lead photo photographer. And he would, um, he would get us the tickets and, you know, we would get to see the ring and, but those days are done. I mean, I really, um, I still know some people in there, but not to the point where I can, I can pull uh comp tickets anymore. And God, the, the prices yeah, and are sometimes it Sometimes it's just awkward to ask. It was this, uh, well, that's it too. Guy, you, you don't want to feel, you don't want people to feel like you're just using them. And the only yeah. time, the only time you reach out to them is when you want tickets, because, you know, I worked there and I know what that feels like. You, you do start to feel like you're being used. And after a while it starts to get a little annoying, especially when it's people that you don't even know very well, you know, so I understand the other side of it too. Yeah. There, there was an engineer who was, um, he was an intern at the studio and then uh, we lost touch. And then he contacted me on Facebook and he said he's like the head uh, or one of the head audio guys now at WWE. And he said, anytime you want tickets, just, you know, let me know. So he offered. So I said, great. So I said, can you get me tickets for so-and-so? And, -so? and uh, he they just gave him a hard time. Couldn't get the tickets. They have clamped down a lot over the years on the comps that they even give to employees. And, it's, and, you know, the funny thing is, um, and it's predictable, but the years where when their business is really, really hot, it gets a lot harder to get the comps because <laughs> when I was there, they were sort of on a downturn in the 2000s and it just and it would get easier and easier to to get the comps because they had a lot of seats available. You know, but from what I understand is especially these days now, the past year or two or three it's been on fire and especially ticket sales wise. And I think um, the employee comps have definitely been reduced from what I've heard. It's a lot harder. And the prices, 
it's like what's happened in in sports and things where you can't you know to take a family to see a Yankees game or something it's just forget about it you're talking about blowing hundreds of dollars the you know the the cost of parking your car is more than what what I used to spend to get a ticket my son went to a Jets game it cost him $78 to park the car yeah well there you go but um I um I'll be just changing back to the old days. Uh, one yes, of the please. first ones I, <laughs> I went to at the Island Garden, uh, my father snuck us into the dressing room, which I guess was easy in those days. Mm-hmm. So I got to take a picture with Haystack's Calhoun. Oh, I hope you still have it. Yeah, of course I have it. <laughs> Good. And um, then anyway, then uh, um, we did a shoot. USA did a shoot with the wrestlers, but they were in charge of, and it was, it was being preempted because of the U uh, S open. Right. So they had the undertaker Kane, uh, and, uh, triple H China and, um, you know, the whole DX thing with, uh, right. Uh, you know, nope. road dog and Billy gun. Yeah. So they were there. You know, and we were, you know, just walking around talking to everybody. So that was uh, that was kind of interesting. I remember the undertaker, they asked him to do something. And he said, no, I can't do that. He says, my character would never do that. <laughs> and uh, they were very protective of his character. I remember. Yeah. That. Yeah. Very much so. And, and we, uh, we weren't even allowed to interview him for the magazine. He was completely off limits. <laughs> And now he's a normal person. He's right. A, <laughs> well, he had the same transformation as as Gorilla Monsoon. You know, used oh, to, yeah. he used to be a raving lunatic uh, in the case of Gorilla, never spoke. And then he just became a perfect gentleman. So yeah. now the the Undertaker went from being, the you know, this weird kind of zombie. And now he's just sort of like a, a guy from Texas, you know. <laughs> yeah, and they never give you reasons. No. <laughs> I mean, the the most, it, it wasn't as extreme, but I remember when Kofi Kingston first started out, he was oh, in Jamaica. Right. They've actually made fun of that occasionally. On yeah, the I remember uh, Triple H saying to him, wait a minute, didn't you used to have an accent? <laughs> right. They also did it with Apollo Crews it, it recently. Oh, yeah, you yeah. saw it where all of a sudden he was talking like, you know, like he was uh, Black Panther or something. And then and then he went back to his American accent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um, so anyway, as far as the, the, another thing with the wrestling, which I might not have told you about, is uh, in addition to, you know, USA and WWE, uh, I started working with Sports Channel. And at oh. that time, they had uh, Herb Abrams. Oh, yes. WWF, oh, yes. And they said, oh, we have our own, you know, wrestling promote. You know, we want to come down to doing a tape at the Pennsylvania Hotel which uh, I went into the city a few weeks ago and I walked out of Penn Station and it was gone. Pennsylvania Hotel. Wait, the Pennsylvania Hotel is gone? Yeah. You're kidding me. I had no idea. I didn't either until I saw, wait a minute, it wasn't Pen- the Pennsylvania Hotel. Now it's a lot. Pennsylvania 65,000. Yeah. Wow. That's a shame. So they did the tapings at you know, one of the ballrooms there. And um, it was, you know, it was nice. They gave us, you know, front row seats and all of that. So um, I know the whole story with Herb Abrams and all of that. But uh, 
one day I, I live in where I live, it's called Little Neck. Mm-hmm. And I would take the railroad to work every day and back. And one day there's this little, you know, grocery store by the train and I get off and they had introduced me to Herb at the, you know, the first time I went and um, I see somebody in the store and he's wearing, it looks like Herb. And then he turned around, he's wearing a jacket that says UWF on the back. So I went over to him and I said, Herb. And he, he got, you know, he didn't know who he was. He got scared right away. And I said, you know, we met at, uh, you know, the show, I worked with Sports Channel. So then he was, oh, yeah, you know, it turns out his parents lived up the block. He was in visiting them. And um, he said, oh, we're doing a taping uh, Saturday afternoon. Why don't you come down, you know? So I said, all right. So we went down, saw him, he gave us T-shirts. He was very nice. And um, what was, they taped, two of the interesting things there was, um, we got there early and all the wrestlers were like mingling and I see Afa sitting on a chair and, you know, he has his hair pulled back in a ponytail. And, uh, you know, my son also was probably about 10 years old at the time. And I said, uh, would you like to meet Afa? So he goes, yeah. So we go over and he says, can I have your autograph? And he says, sure. What's your name? And he goes, how old are you? what grade are you in you know he says you want to take a picture with me and he goes yeah take a picture and he asks if he's doing good in school and then he goes you'll be a good boy and all of that very sweet you know yeah and then uh, an hour later we're sitting in the audience and they go from the jungles of samoa and he comes out you know with his hair all pulled out and drooling and everything (laughs) so that was when my son got his first taste you know right you see the uh the behind the curtain right yeah and then I had seen um, John Tolis. I, you know, I, I walked down the middle of the show to go to the men's room. And uh, I saw John Tolis, and there was nobody around. So I was going to go over and talk to him. And he just, like, ignored me. He walked away from me. Yeah, that happens, too. Yeah, so um, then after the show, I was going to tell him that I saw him back in the day, you know, wrestling Rocker, you know. So back so uh, after the show, we're leaving, and John Tolis and Herb Abrams are taking pictures with the championship belt, uh, you know, to promote that they were having the tournament. So, uh, you know, I walked over and said hello to Herb, and he goes, oh, you know, and he took my son up, and so I got pictures of him and Tolis, uh, you know, and, and Abrams holding the belt. I guess once he knew that you knew, that you knew Herb, he was nicer to you. Yeah, and then I said to him, you know, I said, you know, I saw you wrestle with your brother, you know, against Rocket, and, and he goes, "Oh my God, you must have been about ten years old." And I said, "Yeah, I was." <laughs> but you know, then he was very friendly and all of that. Right. Well, yeah, that would happen. I, I I remember being a kid, and occasionally the wrestlers would blow you off. Especially, I would find if you'd see them away from wrestling like i remember once i won't say who it was but uh i saw a couple of guys at uh in brooklyn at, at the toys r us you know I, I grew up in bensonhurst brooklyn and they're yeah. there and they just blew me off and just said something you know beat it kid or just something like that and and i get you know part of it too is they were supposed to be heels so i i try to give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they were just they didn't want to be too friendly but you know, it was uh, a little. It it shook me a little bit. I just they just dismissed me like I was nothing. So yeah, and now they probably don't do that. 
Well, I think they, you know, especially if you're working for a major company, you're going to get in trouble with the company if you do that. I mean, I remember stories at WWE. In fact, there was a there was a big one about um, the Ultimate Warrior. I, I knew people, you know, that worked there at the time. And, you know, the Ultimate Warrior was known for not being the friendliest with fans away from the ring. And um, he got in trouble for it where there was an employee that sort of said something about it and then he had to apologize it actually happened a couple of times so uh, with him but it happens with other people's where where you you know you represent the company so you know it's different now they 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 the pr is very important and especially now more than ever with social media and fo- everybody's got a phone <laughs> if there's a wrestler that's nasty to a little kid i mean that's going to be all over twitter and facebook in about five yeah. seconds yeah, and back in the back in the day, it probably would have good, been good PR for the heel. That's true. Yeah, I mean, the heels were supposed to act a certain way. You know, you, they would try to get heat sometimes. That, but you know, then you also hear the stories where people will say that the heels were much nicer than the faces um, away yeah. from the ring. That they would tend to be the nicer guys. I heard. I heard that uh, they they probably were sick of people hating them. They wanted people to <laughs> like them for a minute at least. You know. I have a question. Sure. That I don't even know if you would know the answer, but this may not, may be something you don't want to include. I'm just curious about one move that they do. Uh, how I, I can't figure out how they do it without seriously injuring each other. The uh, well, what's his name? Does it um, Baylor? The the crudite is that what they call it? Yeah, yeah. When yeah, he, I know. I know the up. one you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know the problem is. I, for some of these moves, I have to say, um, I wonder how safe they are. You know, it's like when you ask, like, well, how do you do it safely? I think for some of them, I don't know if you can do it safely. I mean, <laughs> some of these moves look very reckless. I, I know the one you're talking about with him. I I mean, um, I don't think I, I think there's a way to do it safely. And I think a lot of times people get nervous over nothing. Like if you don't really know the way that wrestlers work, I mean, they have ways of keeping each other safe that are hard for a lay person to see, but there are a lot of moves that are just flat out uh, reckless that I see guys do. And I just cringe. And, you know, somebody's going to wind up in a wheelchair one of these days from some of these, Uh, one of these things. Yeah. Well, I once saw um, Kofi Kingston went over the top rope and landed on the floor outside on his back. And you saw his whole body, Uh, you know, like every muscle in his body, like, like, like move, you know? And I said, this, can't be good to have this happen to you, you know, all the time. No, it can't. And you see, you know, you th- there were guys like a, like a dynamite kid. He's always the example people point to where you go, well, you know, you don't want to wind up like that. And you start yeah. to see it. You, you you see that. I mean, look look at Mick Foley and you know what a hard time he has getting around these days. And I know the late Terry Funk. He was another one just in constant pain and. You know, his his joints and his bones and his muscles and and even some of the guys that work a more conservative style, they talk about how much they get shaken up and their their body just doesn't um, obey them anymore. And these are not even guys that were that reckless in the ring. It's a very hard thing to do to yourself, you know, five nights a week or four nights a week. Very, very. It's not what our bodies are meant to endure. Right. And, and, you know, if you look at some of the older matches, even from the 70s. Um, they, they they could have lasted a lot longer because they didn't really do that much. I, I was watching 
you know, they have old matches from the garden on the, uh, you know, Peacock. Right. And what what was one match with George Steele against Pedro Morales. And the the whole match was George Steele trying to hide this foreign object. Right. You know, from the referee. Well, they were smart back then. You know, they were smart about it. A lot of times they would save it for the bigger shows, too. Like sometimes you'd see them on a smaller show and they might do a lot less than they were going to do on the big shows because they were trying to save their bodies. Yeah, I remember a lot of, you know, wasted time, like arguing with fans or arguing with the referee and not much wrestling. Well, Larry Zabisco was the king of that. There were a lot of other guys that would. But I think in some ways I miss that. I'm not saying I want everybody to just waste time in a match, but I think that's part of getting the crowd into it. And it's kind of a lost art, the ability to interact with the crowd and and work the crowd. And not everything has to be constant motion, constant moves every second. You know, you, yeah. the, the, and, and the ability to slow to... things down is a, is a lost art. If you watch some of the older matches, like from the 50s, you know, like on YouTube, like a, you know, a Buddy Rogers match or something, even though they, they it's much slower compared to, to, I still find it, you know, fun to watch. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a few, there's a lot of great ones out there from Buddy Rogers or even Luthez, who people mistakenly think was some kind of like boring, you know, wrestler on the mat for, uh, you know, the whole hour, but that's, that's really not true. I mean, there was a, maybe if you, all you're used to watching is what's on today, it might be too slow for you, but you know, there's a lot of excitement in some of those matches from that era. There's a lot of, um, you know, you could watch it almost like you're watching a good boxing, um, match, you know, another one who I, uh, used to love, Back in the day, what I failed to mention was Ricky Starr. Did you ever see any of his matches on YouTube? Oh, yeah. You know, there's a great one. And for people listening, there's one from the Garden that's on YouTube. It's out there. And it's him against, um, I think it was Carl Von Hess, who had sort of like a Nazi gimmick or a yeah. or a, a, just a ger- like a Weimar German kind of gimmick. And you want to talk about a contrast in styles. I mean, Ricky Starr was a ballet dancer, you know, so... Uh, and it, it's it's so much fun to watch. And th- there is a thing on. Um, you ever hear the show to tell the truth? Yes. They have one with Ricky Starr on. You know, like hi, my name is Ricky Starr. Hi, my name is Ricky Starr. And uh, you know, so you know the story is that he's a ballet dancer and a professional wrestler. And um, you know, I, I think nobody got him. And then they ask him to do some ballet moves at the end, and he does it. Yeah, he really was a ballet dancer. He really yeah. did have those moves. And he was a guy that just kind of disappeared. He went to Europe. He went to England. Yeah, and he never came back. He just he lived. He worked out there. Lived the rest of his life there. And about about eight or nine years ago, he died there. Yeah, and, and there are two things. Uh, you might I might have asked you this. Two things I would love to see is I know Rocca wrestled up until he died not often but he would do some matches i think in south america or something yeah well he needed money unfortunately yes yeah and uh ricky star also had a career in uh in england i saw some you know pictures of him and he had like long hair and uh you know different look but you know otherwise he looked the same and i haven't seen any footage of either of them you know in later years 
Right. They, well, they might have wanted it that way, especially in Raka's case. I know that he um, he occasionally wrestled, I think you're right, into the 70s. I know he died in 77. And I think one of his last appearances before he died, they did a tribute show to him on Staten Island. Like some type of, a, I don't know if it was a birthday tribute or an anniversary tribute. And I don't know if he, he either wrestled or he might have been a referee or something. And then he died just days later. He had a lot of health issues, though, too. He was a he was a big drinker, unfortunately. Yeah, and he used to go around saying he was going to live to 150. And he was going to wrestle till he was 100. I think I'm older now than he was when he died, which is crazy to think of. I think he was in his late 40s, if that. Yeah. He looked he about like 30 years older. Yeah, he did. He had a, right, he had a, it was, right, I think a urinary tract infection, but I think it was related to alcoholism, they said. Not too bad. It is, yeah. because he was, you know, he's somebody that I think today is not as well remembered as as he should be. And part of that was that he that he died so so early on, you know, I mean, he was every bit as big of a deal in New York as Bruno was. Maybe not for as long a time, but he definitely was as big as Bruno was in New York. Oh, yeah, yeah. He sold out the guard time he was there. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, he had like a good 10-year run, 12-year run. I still love watching it. I saw something on the pay-per-view the other day that did bother me. Oh, what was it? It was the women's match um, and uh, um, what's her name? Uh Rhea Ripley climbed yeah. up to the top rope, and I think it was uh, who's the, the heavy one? I forgot her name. Nia Jax. No, the other one. Uh, um, Piper Niven. Yes, yeah, Niven and her partner Chelsea are Green. standing. Are, yeah, are standing there like like ready, waiting for her to like jump off. Oh yeah, like it almost like it looked like they were standing there waiting for her with their arms out to catch her. Yeah, there, there's a lot of that that happens now. There's you see the cooperation. You know, somebody posted a video from an indie show where they had a guy who had climbed up, basically into the rafters of the building, just up on a scaffold, and there were two or three guys on the floor just waiting to catch him. And yeah. he, and the worst part is they kind of missed him. So he landed on the floor. Uh, I don't know what's worse. You know, it's like, don't even, why even bother? What's the upside of doing something like that in front of about 35 people, you know, for a yeah, hot yeah. dog and a cup of coffee? Well, Steve, it, it certainly isn't the wrestling that either of us grew up on, but uh, that's why but I we... still like it. I still watch it every uh Me too. Monday me too. Friday. I do too. Um, I still follow it. Yes. But it, it's, I find, you know, everything is uh you know forgotten in the past not just wrestling uh there's like no history i could tell you stories what i won't now because it doesn't involve wrestling but uh you know it's being a recording engineer and recording promos and you know people say who's that i never heard of this you know giving the wrong name or the wrong information or yeah that could be depressing right when you think about the people who uh, people don't remember, you, you know, we mentioned to bring it back full circle. You mentioned Groucho Marx at the top of the show. And I like to do Groucho for Halloween. I do it 
not every year, but a lot of years. It's just something I like to break out. And I can't tell you how many people don't even know who I'm supposed to be. In fact, oh yeah, well, I think it's I probably more more people don't know than the ones that know. And you stop and you go, wait a minute. This is like one of the most recognizable people in the history of the United States. And uh, yeah, people are just like, well, who, I don't know who that is. And even when you say the name, they don't know who it is. So yeah, th- it that happens. Happened to, that happened to me. I, I have a Groucho t-shirt and I walked into a store and the guy behind the counter says, oh, I like your shirt. And I said, thank you. He says, I don't know who it is, but I like it. And I said, it's Groucho Marx. You never heard of Groucho Marx? And he said, I heard of I heard of uh, Karl Marx. <laughs> I never heard of Groucho Marx. Well, you should so have said he, he goes way further back yeah. than Groucho. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, that's I'm glad that this is one of the reasons why I'm glad to have people like you on, Steve, because I like to preserve the stories and the memories and the thing, you know, because time erases everything and you have to fight that tide of just oblivion, you know. So so I, I'm very grateful to you for taking time out to to share a lot of this stuff with me. It's a lot of fun talking about it. And if any uh, young people out there want to see anything entertaining, go on YouTube and look for Ricky Starr or Antonina Rocca or even the early Killer Kowalski matches. And Yes, I, I, I second that. Absolutely. The, there's some great stuff out there. And that's the ironic thing too, Steve, is that now – even though it seems like the the memories go back, um, you know, less and less than they used to, it's easier to find things than it was, you know, when I was a kid. Oh yeah, the, I I for me to be able to see Antonino Rocca or Ricky Starr or Kowalski as a kid, it was almost impossible to do. I mean, I you know, and now it's it, it's definitely a lot easier, but people just have to seek it out. So, absolutely. Well, well, Steve, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate this. This was so much fun, just like I knew it would be. Okay, great talking to you. It was a lot of fun. And uh, keep in touch. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Steve Dworkin. Steve, thanks so much for coming on Shut Up and Wrestle and sharing with us your wonderful memories of being a pro wrestling fan for such a long time and seeing so much. We do appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. And I hope you will keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle in the weeks to come. Next week on the show, my guest will be straight from the Arcadian Vanguard family, the one and only Jace Nakarado, a.k.a. Jay Sharknado, will be here on the show for episode 99 also on the way, Steve Generelli, frequent co-host of the Stick to Wrestling podcast with John McAdam. And I can now somewhat safely announce what I've been hoping to announce. I don't want to jinx it yet because we haven't recorded yet, but we are scheduled. It is on the calendar, ladies and gentlemen. Episode 100 of Shut Up and Wrestle will feature my conversation with James E. Cornett. That's right, the Louisville Lip, direct from the drive-thru, direct from the Jim Cornette experience. He will be my guest for the epic 100th episode of Shut Up and Wrestle. Now let's keep our fingers crossed 
The interview is scheduled. Once we have it in the can, I will be able to sleep at night, but I am excited to share that preliminary news with you. Episode 100, Jim Cornette, on the way. And where can you listen to Shut Up and Wrestle? Well, you can find us at our website, suawpod.com. Also, wherever you find podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Podbean, all the usual places. Also, be sure to join us in our Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. It's where all the cool kids are, so come and join us. Some of the other projects that I work on, The Wrestling News, each and every morning from Arcadian Vanguard. Find it at thewrestlingnews.com or on the YouTube page for Arcadian Vanguard. The books that I have written and published, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic and superheroes, the history of a pop culture phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. Both are available wherever books are sold. Or if you're interested in a signed copy, reach out to me at Solomon at yahoo.com. The magazines that I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, get it at pwi-online.com, as well as Inside the Ropes Magazine, get it at insidetheropesmagazine.com. If you are interested in making a humble financial contribution to the show, to Shut Up and Wrestle, do not hesitate. If you want to do it through PayPal, you can find me at Solomon at yahoo.com. And if you want to do it through Venmo or Cash App, you will find a contribution button at the top of my Twitter profile, Brian R. Solomon. In addition to Twitter, you can find me on Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. And on Facebook, my author page is Brian Solomon Writer. On any of those social media platforms, you will also find the link to my website on the World Wide Web. Also, just want to take a moment this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to wish a very happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you to do unto the man as the man would do unto you, but do it first. So long, wrestling fans.